Welcome everyone to the first session of our series, When Trouble Comes. I want to encourage you to either print out or pull up on your screen the notes for the series. You can do that with the button that's below your media player. It says Class Notes so that you can follow along. It's my hope that this series is going to help us all endure the pandemic that we're all going through that has changed in various ways all of our lives with our kids at home and out of school with most of us out of work, our churches unable to meet, life really at a standstill. And the truth is, we don't know when our lives might get back to normal as the opening up of our society has a number of risks that go with it, not least a possible second wave and then additional disruption, sickness, even fatalities. So we just don't know. Some have been impacted directly. Obviously, those in the medical profession and those who are supplying essential services. But speaking for myself and my extended family and our church family, we've so, so far not lost any loved ones to the coronavirus. But of course, when we speak of trouble, it's not just the present situation, but what has happened in other ways for some of us, even while all of this has been happening. We have had people lose loved ones for other unrelated reasons. We all know that people are dealing with serious illness or perhaps we ourselves have some chronic disease even before all of this started. And if not recently, many of us have experienced loss in the past and the questions about all of that still linger for us. Now, as I talk about trouble in this class, I'm referring to the things that happen to us not the things that we bring on ourselves. I'm talking about suffering as opposed to personal sin. No one knowingly brings a virus on themselves or cancer or a fatal car accident or the loss of a spouse or a child or natural disasters that destroy property and people. We all do things that contribute to our despair. That's personal sin, but in this class, we're going to be focused on what is imposed on us, not what's done by us. So it's suffering, not individual sin. So, okay, let's, let's get to it. On page one of your notes, after the introductory pages, you see at the top of page one that section one of our series deals with what I call the pain of suffering. And then the first lesson is titled, The Perils of Pain. And you see at the top of page one, after the key passages that are listed there, and I encourage you to read those if you can this week, just after that we have the example of the life of one Nathan Sowers. Let me briefly tell you about the story regarding Nathan and his family. It's a true story of a couple, Dave and Teresa Sowers, who were blessed with a first child, a very healthy child, and they very much look forward to the arrival of their, their second. Sure enough, Teresa became pregnant with their second child, but as they went through the ultrasounds, they discovered that there were some issues developing with the baby in the womb. The doctor was not sure about the nature of those issues for their son, but it was of such concern that he recommended doing an experimental surgery while the baby was still as yet unborn. The results were going to be quite unpredictable, but since abortion was thankfully not an option for the Sowers, who were a, a Christian couple, and they didn't want to do nothing and just hope for the best, they decided to go along with it. 
The surgery was done, and to everyone's delight, it appeared successful. The tests that were run after the surgery showed good signs. So Teresa was able to carry the baby to term, and by all appearances, that she gave birth to a healthy baby boy. They named him Nathaniel, which means gift from God. But after just a couple of years, Nathan began to develop problems, kidney problems. And as a result of those kidney problems, he was in and out of the doctor, he was in and out of the hospital. Nathan needed a kidney, so they had to search for a donor, but they didn't have to search for very long because, as it turned out, Dad, Dave, was a perfect match. And so a transplant was performed, and again, successful, and everyone rejoiced and praised God. It was a matter of just a few days in the hospital, and Dad and son recovered, and they were home. But then just a few days after the surgery, the pastor of their church received a call from Teresa, and he could tell that something had changed in her voice. She told him that Nathaniel, this gift from God, had taken a turn for the worse and they didn't expect him to make it. After less than 24 hours more, Nathaniel was gone. So all of these high hopes, these incredibly high hopes, and after all of this roller coaster of emotions, and after their gratitude to God for two successful surgeries in this baby's young life, this precious toddler was taken from them. Now, when you hear a story like that, and perhaps some of you have experience something similar or you're going through something similar right now. When you hear a story like that, what kinds of questions go through your mind? In this class, we're going to explore the questions that we ask or really should ask when trouble comes to us. Questions like, why do bad things happen? What are God's purposes in allowing suffering? How do our beliefs affect our view of difficulty? What assumptions do we all make regarding suffering? Why are we so surprised when it happens? How can I make it through my present distress? And how can I help others who are experiencing pain? In this first lesson, we're going to lay the foundation for addressing those questions with six realities that we have on pages one and two. The first one, as you see in your notes, is that suffering is universal. That is, suffering happens to all of us with no exceptions. But we're more surprised by suffering than those in the past because we're so blessed with means to prevent it and even remove it when it happens. In our Easter message just this past Sunday, I pointed out that until modern times, suffering was assumed to be a constant of life. This, the average family in the United States in colonial times lost one out of every three children before adulthood. And since the life expectancy of all people at that time was about 40 years, great numbers lost their parents when they were still children. Nearly everyone grew up seeing corpses and watching relatives die, both young and old. And today, with improvements in medicine and radical advances in technology and significant progress in so many fields of knowledge, suffering has come to be seen by most of us as an anomaly, an extreme exception. But consider this. The Bible teaches that there would be no suffering at all, no disease at all, were it not for the fact that the human race rebelled against God at the beginning of human history. The Bible records what's called the fall, the entrance of sin into God's good world 
in the Bible's very first chapters in Genesis 1 through 3. And the result of the fall, the result of our sin, is that sickness, disease, and disaster are now part of our world. Now, if the world in which we live is a fallen, sinful world, and one of the results of the fall is sickness and disease and suffering, and it is, if that's the case, then it ought to be the rule rather than the exception that we go through these things. Suffering should be the rule rather than the exception in life in a fallen world. And yet we are blessed by the common grace of God with the advantages of technology and medicine that allow us to see suffering as the exception rather than the rule. So one of the realities that we need to understand regarding suffering is that it is universal even if its effects are now muted because of the blessings that God's grace has afforded us. And because we no longer suffer in all the ways our ancestors did, when difficulties do come our way, it's a major shock to our system, and we're prone to immediately ask why. Why did this happen? Since it's so exceptional in our experience, we wonder and we ask, why me? This must have happened because I did something in particular to deserve it. So at the outset of our series, we need to put to rest the idea that whenever bad things happen to us, it's because of something in particular that we have done. We need to lose the idea that God acts in a fashion that's really lex talionis in reverse. Now, what is that? Well, lex talionis is Latin, and it means the law of retaliation. As many of you know from the first part of your Bible, this idea of the lex talionis comes from an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But the reason God gave that was as a protection in the criminal justice system of Israel so that punishments were meted out to fit the crime. So you only take an eye for an eye and only take a tooth for a tooth. You're not to have cruel and unusual punishments for lesser offenses such that the punishment does not fit the crime. But this Latin phrase means law of retaliation. And some of us take that wrong in reverse so that we think God operates according to one punishment for one offense rule. You do this, you're going to be punished with something. So when something bad happens, we immediately begin to look at whatever the thing was that we supposedly did. But that's contrary to what the Scriptures teach in a few places. One of those is in the book of Job. Many of you are familiar with the book of Job, where the Bible makes it very clear in that story that bad things don't always happen because we've done something in particular. In that story, Job had done nothing to warrant the things that happened to him. In fact, the refrain in that book is that, quote, in all of this, Job did not sin. And in the very first chapter, Job was identified as a righteous man, a blameless man before the Lord. It recounts there all the things that he did because of his love for the Lord, both on behalf of himself and on behalf of his family. And we're given a glimpse in chapter 1 of the book of Job behind the scenes that went on that Job knew nothing about. Job was afflicted with all of these severe calamities, physical problems for himself, the loss of his property, then the loss of his family. He was afflicted with all of it in short order and yet he did not know why. But we know why, because we're able to read chapter 1. 
it tells us that Satan, the accuser, had challenged God. And Satan had said to God, people only serve you because you protect them because of the things you give them. If you remove that protection, you remove those gifts, then Job will curse you. And that challenge was taken and met in Job. And at the end of the book, we find Job praising God rather than cursing him as Satan had wrongly predicted, because indeed Job loved the giver more than just the gifts. So the book of Job teaches us very directly that if you suffer a particular thing, it is not necessarily because you've done a particular thing. We all suffer because we are sinners, yes, and we live in a sin-cursed world, in a fallen world, but there is not a one-for-one, a lex talionis in reverse. And in John chapter 9 in your Bible, it teaches the same thing. There in that chapter, a man was brought to Jesus who had been blind from birth, and those who brought the man to Jesus asked the question, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. The assumption in their question was that somebody sinned. There's a one-for-one. Somebody did X, therefore Y happened. There's a cause and effect. So the question is, who? Who caused this effect, this man or his parents? But Jesus corrected that thinking when he said this, quote, neither this man nor his parents, but that the glory of God might be manifest in him. And then Jesus went on to heal that man. So suffering is universal. It happens to all of us, and when it happens to all of us, all of us have the tendency to ask, why is this particular thing happening to me? But sometimes things happen to us simply because suffering is universal, and we live in a fallen world with all of its fallen effects. So reality number one, when something particularly traumatic happens to us, and we ask the question, why did this happen? It may just be because suffering is universal. Secondly, on your notes, suffering is painful. There's nothing more central to human experience than our capacity to feel, and no aspect of this is as deep as our capacity to suffer. To some degree, every person has experienced a wound or hurt. And yet as frequent as physical and emotional pain seem to be, we react as if trouble is unexpected and alien to our lives for reasons that I've already talked about. But suffering happens to all of us, and it is painful. So we should not be surprised that we experience it, and that when we do, we feel it. We feel it deeply, whether physically or emotionally. In fact, the word trauma means a wound. So we've all been wounded. We've all been traumatized which means we all have traumatic experiences emotionally and physical. Suffering is universal, and suffering is painful. And we have a third reality in your notes, and that is that suffering is personal. The way we experience pain, when it happens to us, differs. So there's not a one-size-fits-all way to address the suffering that we have. There are indeed common truths that we're going to be reminded of in this series, but we suffer differently because we are different. And those differences come from a couple of sources. One is from our nature, our personalities, our God-given nature, but also from our nurture, our experiences, our environment, the way we were brought up. The things that have happened to us in the past affect the way we, things that ha the way we deal with the things that 
happen to us in the present and in the future. So if you're suffering in a way that's different than someone else you know, or perhaps your suffering is more prolonged than someone that you've known in a similar circumstance and you feel guilty about that, you shouldn't necessarily feel guilty. You're different people, and we each experience suffering in different ways. The fourth reality that we need to understand about suffering is that it's unnerving, as we say in your notes. These seemingly cruel circumstances often leave us stunned and blindsided, and we experience a shock to the system, a sort of laceration to the soul, a wound in our spirit. Despite our attempts to devise a world where we can predict and contrive and control the outcome, we find that our best efforts most often fail, and we're reminded once again that life is beyond our control. It's unnerving because it reminds us that we're not really in the driver's seat the way we thought we were. Because the bad things that happen to us often happen quickly, as if out of nowhere, it's all the more unsettling. So I want to read a passage in the Bible that tells us about this. In James chapter 1 and verse 2, it says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now that short verse is packed with meaning, and it actually encapsulates many of the first four realities that we've talked about, including this unnerving piece. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. If you've been a part of our church, you've heard me say over the years, and I included in our Church Matters blog two weeks ago, that that short verse contains four very important things about difficult circumstances that happen in our, our lives. Let me go through those quickly. The first one is, it tells us that trials are unplanned. Trials are unexpected. Now, why do I say that? When that verse says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face, whenever you face trials of many kinds. When it says, when you face, that word translated face is the same word that's used in a parable that Jesus told of a man who was traveling along and Jesus said he, quote, fell among thieves. So in James chapter 1 and verse 2, it could say, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you fall into, and in fact, some translations say that. So the picture is of this traveler going along, minding his own business, and then he faces this difficulty of being robbed, beaten, and attacked. He falls into this, this trial. It just comes upon him. He stumbles onto it. And that's what the Bible is saying here in James chapter 1. It's that these trials are unplanned. They can happen at any time, and they happen to everybody. We fall into them. We encounter them. We're just going through life, and they happen. So trials are unplanned. Secondly, they're unavoidable. The verse says, whenever you face trials. Now notice, it's when, not if you face them. It's not a matter of if trials are going to come our way, but when. Now over the years, I've counseled many people who've had the mindset that if I can just get out of this current predicament that I'm in, if I can, if I can just get this one thing behind me, just give me a couple of months and I'll have it together and then I can start serving God. And I have to remind them that the current trial is just got another one waiting to happen. <laughs> so rather than being surprised and chafing at the inevitable trials of a fallen world, we should prepare ourselves before they happen. And this class is designed to help us to do that. 
So lose the idea, dear friend, that if I just get out of this one, then it'll be home free after that. Life in a fallen world isn't like that. Trials are unavoidable. It's when, not if. So they're unplanned, unavoidable. Thirdly, they're usually unwanted. That's why they're called trials. They try us, and most often that trial is painful. Now, as you read through the rest of James chapter 1, you're going to find that sometimes the trial can actually be something that otherwise would be a good thing, and God is trying us with that good thing. But most often, these trials are painful so that they're unwanted. No one would ask for them. No one would ask for this traumatic thing to happen, this tragedy to occur. But God allows them into our lives for His purposes that we'll see in just a bit. So four things about our suffering. They're unplanned, unavoidable, unwanted. Lastly, James chapter 1 tells us they're unlimited. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face. And then it says these trials are of many kinds. They're unlimited in their shapes and varieties. They come in all forms of circumstances. That is, situations that face us like a health issue, a finance issue, a job issue. But sometimes that circumstance, that situation is a relational issue as well. So the variety may mean I've got a troublesome person in my life, somebody who has been imposed upon me, someone that I am in relationship with, that I am, that I am bound with who's giving me difficulty, and for whatever reason, we're estranged from one another, and at least to this point, we've not been able to be reconciled. And so it may be a situation, it may be a relationship, but the Bible is simply saying they come in various forms, these trials. Now, what is it that's being tried in a trial? Well, here's how the first part of that verse in James chapter 1 and verse 2 can say, consider it joy. It's because the next verse, verse 3, says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So how can I have joy? doesn't mean I'm happy about it, certainly not thrilled about it. I may be quite sad about it. But in the midst of this, I can still have what the Bible teaches is the abiding sense of delight that is joy because God is at work in my life. Now, how? How can I have that abiding sense of delight in the midst of even this difficulty, knowing that God is at work? Well, it's because of what you know, James says in chapter 1 and verse 3. And what do you know? You know that the testing of your faith does something. The testing of your faith, the Bible teaches us, produces perseverance. And then the passage goes on to talk about the other good things that flow from that. So James is saying, you should at all times and in all circumstances and in all relationships, even those that are adverse and difficult, you should know this, that even though these difficult circumstances are unplanned, they're unavoidable, unwanted, unlimited in their variety, you should know and remember that God ultimately has a good design in this. You know that the testing of your faith produces these good things. Now notice what the Bible says is being tested. It's the testing of your faith. Now, as I say, whenever I encounter this word faith in the Bible, the Greek word that's translated faith is also translated belief, believe. So what is it that's being tested? It's your faith, the testing of your faith, or to put it another way, the testing of what you believe. When we suffer, when we experience pain, what we really believe 
is put to the test. You see, friends, isn't it true that we can say we believe things when everything is going well? But then when things become difficult, suddenly those beliefs are nowhere to be found. It's then that I see what I really believe. Do I believe, for example, that God is good? Do I really believe that God is in control? So the testing of what we believe is what God is doing. And if we do believe the truth about ourselves and God, then when you come out the backside of that test, that trial, the Bible says it produces these good things. Now realities numbers five and six quickly. Reality number five at the bottom of page one is that suffering is mysterious. Much like a disorienting maze, it's difficult to find one's way out of suffering and the inescapable pain can become overwhelming for us. Although we yearn to feel normal again, we know that normalcy may never come back, and so it's mysterious for us. And it's mysterious in the sense that I don't know how long it will be. I don't know precisely how this good outcome that God promises that will occur. I don't know how it will come about, and therefore it's a mystery to me. I know these truths, and I have to remind myself to believe these truths, but the time frame and the circumstances in which God's going to bring out the fulfillment of those promises, it's all unknown, and it's mysterious to us. But remember this, that although it's mysterious to us, what our God is doing is no mystery to Him. This begins to answer one of the mysteries regarding God's use of suffering. Because it really seems beneath God, for many of us, that God would use suffering for His good purposes. After all, suffering is bad, and God is good. So why does He use suffering? We wonder about this because we only have a limited view of the events that come into our lives, but God has an infinitely wide view. You see, friends, God has the ability to see every circumstances that we're in through two lenses, we only have one lens. God has a narrow lens where He sees the event, and the event is painful, and it's suffering, and He can call it that in Scripture, and He does. He calls a bad thing a bad thing, and that's the way He sees it, through the same narrow lens that we have. But we're stuck with just that narrow lens. But then God has the widest possible lens to see that bad event in connection to all other things And what it is He's going to produce, God sees every piece of that. And the mystery for us is that we don't have the wide lens. Only God has the wide lens. And therefore, it's mysterious to us. We must trust what He tells us to give us some part of that wide lens in His revelation in Scripture. And then lastly, on page two of your notes, the sixth reality is that suffering is biblical. We just see it throughout the Bible. God the Father used suffering in the life of Jesus, God the Son, to have Him demonstrate the obedience that would make His death on the cross acceptable to God the Father. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8 says, quote, He learned obedience from what He suffered. In the cauldron of suffering, He was tested. But of course, the sinless Son of God passed all of those tests. And suffering teaches all of us obedience, even the heroes of the faith like David and Abraham, along with apostles like Paul, they all experienced suffering. The Chinese have a word 
that's written with two symbols that represent individual words but combine to mean something else. One of the symbols means danger and the other means opportunity. And together these words, to danger and opportunity, form the Chinese word for crisis. In a crisis, there's both danger, but there's also opportunity. You have both components. There is, of course, the danger. Danger in the event itself, but also danger in what it's going to do to us depending on how we deal with it. But that's why there's also opportunity in the crisis, because it presents opportunities for good things in the midst of the bad, again, also depending on how we deal with it. As we grapple with the effects of a virus that originated in China, it's fitting that a word spelled in Chinese would capture how we're to look at this current circumstance and, frankly, all circumstances, including those that are not desirable like this one. I said on the Church Matters blog two weeks ago that we've been given responsibility. I like to think of that word as a combination of response and ability. We're responsible because we have the ability to respond, response, ability. And in this class, we want to help you do that. Use your ability to respond well and seize the opportunity that the crisis, whatever the form of the crisis in your life, presents. In the weeks ahead, we're going to explore that together and see how God works in our misery to show us his mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us the truths of your word in the midst of so much that is unknown to us in this fallen world. Lord, we are in the midst of this pandemic, an unprecedented time with all of the questions that go with it. But even before that and, and during this time and after this time, because life in a fallen world is as it is, then many of us have gone through and are going through trials of many kinds, and there are trials unknown to us that still await. Thank you, Lord, for giving us truth in your word that addresses every circumstance that comes into our lives so that we can apply what you tell us to those circumstances and come out on the other side more like you and better equipped to serve you. So we ask you to help us in the weeks ahead to understand those truths, to make application of those truths, so that your work in us will be fulfilled. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you next week.